Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've got an interesting pairing for the hosting today. You've got Beth, myself, but you've also got Beth. Hello, Beth. Hello. (laughs) You doing okay? Yes, very well. How are you, Beth? Really, really good and really looking forward to this today. I've just realised as we've met our guest, we've met in the past and we've had we had a great time on a previous episode on John of Gorn. So Catherine Warner's back. She's returned. More medieval stuff. <laughs> um, so just a, as a bit of a refresher, Catherine's a specialist in the 13th and 14th centuries and the author of several books on the period, including the John of Gaunt one, which I highly recommend. Um, and her latest book, that we're going to be talking about today is an in-depth book at London in the 14th century and she's here to tell us all about the history of the city during that time. Catherine, welcome. Hi, thank you, it's so nice to be here again. I'm really looking forward to having a great chat with you both. Brilliant. So um, we'll kick off with a big question for you, Catherine. So we wanted to kind of get a sense of the scope of um, medieval London at this point. So if you could kick us off with, I mean, what constitutes medieval London? How big is the city? What's going on? Well, I think that the key thing that we you know, really have to bear in mind is that London, uh, compared to the city nowadays, was absolutely tiny in the 14th century. So the population around 1300 uh, has been estimated at about 80,000, perhaps as many as 100,000. But of course, we see that, that you know, the, the modern city in the 21st century is something like 100 times bigger uh, than, than it, it was uh, 700 years ago. So I kind of tend to think of, of London in the 14th century as a fortified castle writ large. Um, so if we stand on the Thames and, and look towards the north, we can see the Tower of London, uh, as the southeast corner of, of, of the city. Uh, and then a big wall went around it in, in a very kind of rough semicircle, just, just north of the Thames. 
so the, the medieval wall basically no longer exists. And there's a, a small fragment of it outside Tower Hill Underground Station, uh, which is about 35 feet high. Uh, so 700 years ago, this wall went round uh, the entire city. And there were seven great gates into London. Uh, one of them was at the south end of the London Bridge. And then around the wall, there were six other uh, great gates. For example, you know, like Old Gate, Cripples Gate, uh, New Gate, Bishop's Gate, uh, and so on. So, yeah, basically London, uh, compared to nowadays, was was just absolutely tiny. And it was more like a castle, uh, if we can imagine it like that, than, than a city, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so can you just maybe take us on for our viewers, like a, a virtual stroll through through the city? You know, what, what would it look like? You know, as you mentioned, obviously, the wall surrounding the city. Um, mm-hmm. but are there any elements that we would still recognise today? What kind of buildings are there? What are the streets mm-hmm. like? So as you would be approaching London, uh, the biggest thing that you would see would be the spire of St. Paul's, which was the the highest building in London in the 1300s. Now, this, of course, is old St. Paul's, which was destroyed uh, during the Great Fire of London in 1666 and rebuilt. But that would have dominated um, the skyline of medieval London. Um, Another thing that we'd see an awful lot of would be churches, parish churches. There were just countless dozens of them in medieval London. I mean, practically one on, on every street corner. Um, there were also more rivers besides the Thames that we would be able to see. For example, there was there were smaller rivers such as the Fleet and the Tyburn, which later on were culverted over and now run completely underground. So the only bridge over the Thames in the 14th century was London Bridge, but there were a couple of bridges over the other rivers as, as well. There was one over the, the Fleet uh, as well, for example. So one thing that we would definitely notice would be how narrow the streets tended to be. Um, So when I looked at the streets running down to the River Thames, for example, they were perhaps um, at the the end of the road that was away from the river. They were perhaps as much as seven or eight feet wide. But at, at the river end, they were only about 45 inches wide. So the streets were very, very narrow. Um, On either side, they would have been lined by houses that were usually several stories high, mostly made of wood. There were the occasional stone buildings, but most houses were made of wood. Uh, Their upper stories tended to kind of like jut out into the street with what we call solars, you know, like the the upper the upper parts of the building that jutted out into into the street. So the streets would have been quite narrow uh, and pretty dark. Uh, They also probably would have been quite, quite filthy, to be honest. Um, so throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, there were these endless campaigns to, to make London less dirty and, and less smelly, quite honestly, uh, because the residents had this tendency to throw out all their rubbish and their muck into the streets and just leave it lying there. Uh, so they were actually fined for doing that. The, a fine for doing it the first time was 40 pence, which was, say, roughly a month's wages or almost for most people. Uh, a second fine would be 80 pence. So, you know, this was quite a lot of money for most people at the time. Mm-hmm. So instead of just throwing their muck out of the streets, they were told to take it and deposit it in the River Thames, which I'm not sure was quite the most sensible solution, really, <laughs> uh, because obviously the Thames was the, the city's main waterway and it also got severely clogged up. Uh, with you know with muck and all kinds of like you know disgusting rubbish and then that had to be cleaned as well uh, the river fleet was also filthy uh, in 1355 Edward III complained about the disgusting smell from from the river fleet you know even in the middle of winter so it must have been absolutely terrible in in the summer 
And it does seem that at least sometimes that there were piles of, of muck or dung, you know, lying in the street, you know, probably from all, all the horses that were being ridden around. Uh, for example, in 1322, one man got into a quarrel uh, outside a tavern where, with some men who were armed with knives. They chased after him. Uh, he was about to escape. And unfortunately for him, he fell over a pile of dung in the street and then, and then was caught and, un- and unfortunately stabbed to death by his uh, adversaries. Oh so it does seem that there, at least on occasion, there, there were times when the streets of London were, were kind of full of, of dung and endless mares. And even the king sometimes got involved and, you know, tried to do something about this. And this this battle continued throughout the 14th century. So that's something else that, that we would see. So as well as all the hundreds of, of churches in medieval London, there were also a lot of taverns. So in 1309, there were 354 taverns in London which equates to approximately one for every 225 people. Um, they had what we, what was called an ale steak outside to tell people the name of the tavern. Um, so these were, this was usually a, an image carved within a hoop. So most of the taverns in London had a hoop name. So they were called, for example, the angel in the hoop, the bear in the hoop, the peacock in the hoop. There was another tavern in the 1310s and 1320s, which stood at the north end of London Bridge. Uh, which was called a Drinkwater's Tavern uh, because it was owned by a man called Thomas Drinkwater. And as well as the taverns and the churches, you'd also see latrines. There were some public latrines in, in London in the 14th century. There was one at Queen Hyde, for example. There was one in the middle of London Bridge. Um, people often shared a latrine with their neighbours, so it seems to they seem to have normally been constructed behind people's houses in some kind of, of little uh, building. Um, we would see two pillories as well. There was at least two public pillories in medieval London, one on Cheapside and one on Cornhill. So the pillory was a, a kind of wooden contraption where um, criminals were, were locked into, you know, where their, their head and hands were locked into the pillory as a punishment, usually for an hour, sometimes for two hours. So, for example, if you were a butcher and you tried to sell bad meat, you would be locked into the pillory for an hour and the hor- and the rotten meat would be burnt underneath you. So it's really quite disgusting. So we would see uh, criminals being published on the pillory quite often as well. Sometimes they were also dragged through the, the dirty streets on a hurdle. Again, some kind of wooden contraption that was pulled behind a horse. So punishment in, in medieval London was very much to do with public humiliation. Um, we wouldn't see much of London after dark. Obviously, this is many centuries before the invention of electric lights, but also because there was a curfew in place in 14th century London. So after a certain time, I think it was about an hour or so after dark fell, you technically weren't allowed to be out on the streets. I mean, a lot of people obviously ignored the curfew. Uh, so the authorities had to keep uh, renewing the, the instruction not to go out onto the streets. And also the seven great gates into London would be locked at curfew. So if you found yourself, you know, hurrying into the city after dark, it was very easy to find yourself locked out of the city. And another thing we would see, of course, would be shops. Um, so the main trading area of 14th century London was the area around what we call Cheapside. Back then it was just called Cheap. Uh, different shops or different traders tended to congregate on different streets, and we still see those names in modern London, for example, Milk Street, Red Street, uh, Poultry. We would also see a lot of meat and fish stalls. There was a big open area called the Stocks um, where they, they sold meat. We would see a lot of people um, walking the streets, you know, selling pasties 
or apples, for example, you know, for, from a tray around their necks. People often often did that. Hmm. And perhaps surprisingly, we, we would also see a lot of gardens. So much to my surprise, when I, I, I did my research uh, for 14th century London, there were a lot more gardens in 14th in the city than I expected. London presented a much greener aspect than perhaps we might exist. We might expect. Um, so outside the city, there were a lot of fields and pasture lands. But even within the, the city, um, people, not necessarily even rich people, often owned a, a small garden. And some people grew their own fruit, usually apples or pears or plums or quinces. They sometimes grew their own vegetables as well. So, yeah, 14th century London was, was a fairly green place and perhaps not as unattractive as as, as I expected when I started researching. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I mean, as for what we'd recognise of the city nowadays, probably not all that much because, of course, you know, the vast majority of medieval London was destroyed during the Great Fire in, in the 1600s. Um, so, you know, maybe we'd see we'd still see the Tower of London and then perhaps, I suppose, Westminster Abbey. But back then, of course, Westminster was a separate settlement. It was a couple of miles outside London. <clears throat> so it's just, as you say, it's just little glimpses that you get walking around London today of its medieval past. But, yeah. you know, so much of it has has sadly been lost. And um, that was a, a wonderful sensory um, tour for our listeners um, through medieval London. Thank you. And um, so if we want to shift now and um, have a think about London's place in it, in the kind of in the wider world. I mean, what was London's reputation at this point? Was it considered one of the important medieval cities? Who were its kind of, I guess, rivals for that? Well, I suppose on a European scale, it wasn't a particularly large city. Um, so Paris, for example, was quite a lot larger. There were several cities uh, in northern Italy, which at the time were, you know, probably just about as powerful as London and probably larger, like, you know, Milan, Florence, Venice, even Genoa, um, possibly even Seville and Cordoba in, in the south of Spain were, were larger than London at, at this point. Um, Constantinople, you know, which later became Istanbul, was, as far as I'm aware, the largest city in Europe in, in, in the Middle Ages. So for, on a European scale, London didn't cut a particularly impressive figure, I'd have to say. Um, but by English standards, of course, it was by far the largest city. So the next uh, largest settlements in 14th century England were basically Bristol, York and perhaps Norwich, which all had populations of around 10 to 12,000. So they were absolutely minute by modern standards and the cities that we have nowadays in the north of England were basically still just villages in the 14th century like Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield they just you know just had you know maybe several hundred inhabitants so um, the north of England was pretty well empty so uh, pro and on that kind of comparison yes London was was massively impressive and um, yes it, it was seen as what Edward III in the 1330s called the mirror and exemplar of the whole realm you know, it was by far the most important place. Um, in 1338, the mayor and bailiffs of Oxford uh, sent a letter to the mayor and sheriffs and aldermen of London, addressing them with all the honours and reverences due from a daughter to a mother. So it's so people kind of thought of London as the mother city. And the fact that they thought of it as female is also something that I, I find quite interesting. And I noticed myself when I was younger and left university, how many of my friends from university moved to London uh, to find work. And I realised that in the 14th century, that was already the case. London was already a massive magnet uh, that attracted people from England, from all over England, even from Scotland and Wales, which, you know, until the 
13th, 14th century were hostile countries uh, to England. So we can see from people's names how many of them moved to, to London to find work or to take up apprenticeships. And many of the most important men in, in London in the early 14th century actually came from outside the city. Some of the mayors, for example, like Richard Refham, who was mayor in 1310, 1311, uh, came from Norfolk. John Grantham, who was mayor in the late 1320s, came from Lincolnshire. And then two other mayors, Simon Swanland and Simon Francis, came from Yorkshire. So hmm. as far as I can work out, the number of people who moved to London actually massively outnumbered the, the people who were born in the city. So it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a real madness, even 700 years ago. Mm. Yeah, it sounds very much like today, you know, where, where I live in, in the Midlands, I have so many friends who after uni went to to London to to live and work um but in then I suppose tying into that aspect at this time in the 14th century London is actually quite multicultural isn't it now that's something we think of as a byproduct of uh, imperialism and people coming to you know the Windrush and so on but it's not the case that's not the case we've always had a multicultural London is that something people should be surprised by well, certainly I found this quite surprising when I started looking into it, because obviously, you know, as you say, modern London is, you know, one of the most multicultural cities in the world, which which is great. And even 700 years ago, there was an enormous foreign population in London. I found there was a particularly large number of Italians living in London in the early 1300s. So a lot of them were, were wine merchants, for example, or they worked as physicians or apothecaries. You know, some of them were bankers. Uh, They were bankers from Florence in in this period in London. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And it was also nice to see that quite a lot of them lived in London for decades. You know, they settled there, they married English people, they raised families in London. Um, I was researching one man um, who was called Orlandino Podeo, fantastic name, uh, who in a, around 1300 uh, actually bought a house in London and then set, and then died there a few years later. Um, there were numerous Florentine merchants who became very successful and very wealthy in London and, and owned property there. Um, so I, as far as I could work out, the largest foreign contingent in London uh, were the Italians. There were also quite a lot of uh, Germans, uh, Portuguese people, for example, um, people from you know what, what is now Belgium and the Netherlands, the Low Countries. They settled there. Um, there weren't as many French people, and this is probably because um, in the first half of the 14th century, England and France were often at war with each other. Mm. But there were still a few French people. Like I found this woman in the early 1300s called Catherine la Française, uh, which means Catherine the French woman. Uh, and they tended to congregate in certain areas of the city. Like, for example, like the, the French wine merchants lived in the Vintry Ward of London, for example. Um, so when it comes to, to people from outside Europe, it wasn't quite so easy to find that many. But I, I did find uh, a man called Adam of Antioch, for example. There was an Arabian man called um, Bidan of Araby, he was, he was called. And we also fairly often see the name Saracen uh, given to people, which is in modern English would be Saracen. 
And this was a word used uh, basically for, for Muslims or perhaps more generally for, for people of, of Arab or, or North African origin. So it, it strikes me that as well as Europeans, there were also quite a few non-Europeans uh, living in London in the, the early 1300s. Yeah. It's brilliant to hear some of those little kind of personal stories to bring yeah. colour and life to, to medieval London. And yeah. to take it down to the sources, because obviously one of the most exciting things about a new project is getting to go to the archives and, and just see and touch these wonderful um, artefacts in person. So if you might be able to talk a little bit about the kind of sources that you used for this and the archives you went to and, and kind of yeah, bring that material to life. Yeah, so we're very, very lucky that there is a vast wealth of sources for, for 14th century London. I mean, like far more than, than we might ever imagine. So at the Guildhall in London, for example, they keep what's called the letter books. So these are documents containing all, all the letters relating to, to the London authorities and, and the writs that they sent out, for example, to the sheriffs or, and this kind of thing. So we can see it, we, we can see a lot about the governance of London in, in these kind of documents, but also the, the lives of, of, of ordinary people who, for example, were being arrested or, <laughs> or had done something wrong. Um, we're also very lucky to have countless thousands of wills from 14th century London. And these are great, you know, not only to see what kind of property and, and items that people owned, but I, I was also able to trace families down the generations, which I found really fascinating. So, again, this, this really um, brought, brought medieval Londoners to life and was really wonderful to be able to read. Um, we also have one fantastic source called the Coroner's Rolls, which exists for only a few years of the 14th century, unfortunately, uh, 1300 to 1301. Uh, the first half of the 1320s and the last few years of the 1330s. So when a Londoner died suddenly or unexpectedly, uh, his or her death was, was investigated by jurors on behalf of the coroner. So this can be absolutely fascinating uh, to see, you know, how people died in these years. You know, often they, they were killed because um, the homicide rate in London, like, like in all of 14th century England, was, was vastly higher than, than it is nowadays. Uh, someone worked out that the murder rate in, in 14th century London was between 15 to 20 times higher than it would be in, in a modern city of comparable size. Wow. Um, so it's also fascinating to see what kind of accidents people had. And there was this strange uh, system which was called diodand, which means gift to God in Latin. And when an accident happened, uh, the inanimate object which caused the accident uh, had to be valued. And then this value had to be uh, paid as a fine to the king. So let's say, for example, if a 14th century Londoner fell down her stairs and, and died after breaking her neck, the stairs would be valued at perhaps six pence. And then her relatives would then have to pay six pence as a fine to the king. This very, very strange system which we see in, in coroner's roles. Is that because, is that because the, the person would have been considered of property, like a value to I the king? That's, that's what it all boils down to. Yes, it's, it was a really odd, odd system. But you, you know, if you died in bed, that didn't count. Like the object had to be moving or, or had to be able to cause movement. So people who just died suddenly of illness or whatever in bed didn't have to pay a fine. But if you fell, you know, walking down the street and, and you know, whatever happened, then you, you had to pay a fine. Yeah. Mm. So the coroner's rolls are a great source. But I have to say that my absolute favourite 14th century source is the London Assize of Nuisance which we're very lucky because it exists for every year of the 14th century. 
And it was held on Fridays by the mayor and some of the aldermen. The aldermen were the men who were in charge of the of the London wards. There were 25 uh, wards. And it was held every few weeks. And people could go there and complain about their neighbours. So we can, we can see the, the disputes that people were having with their neighbours. And many of them uh, related to latrines, perhaps unsurprisingly. Mm. <laughs> Um, people having to share latrines and they weren't being maintained properly. Uh, pigsties was another one. Like, my neighbour has built her pigsty too close to my wall and it's knocking my wall down was, is another <laughs> typical one. And one, and one very um, common complaint that, that really surprised me um, was that if someone built a new house and it blocked the view of another house, uh, people could go and complain to the assize of nuisance. Um, so people actually had this this concept even 700 years ago that they should be able to have a view from their house, which I, I thought was quite extraordinary. Or if your neighbours uh, built some new uh, windows in their house and they overlooked your house or, or your garden, you could go to the Assize of Nuisance and, this, and the person would be uh, ordered to, to block the window up. And if they didn't, they could be fined quite a large sum of money. And I found this also incredibly surprising that I would never have thought that 14th century Londoners would, Londoners would have had much concept of privacy, but they obviously did because there are just dozens and dozens of, of neighbours being, being told to, to block up their windows to maintain uh, their neighbours' right to privacy, which is, I think is fascinating. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, that almost sounds a little bit like uh, what you're saying about the windows. It's almost like people when they uh, apply for like planning permission now to the council, isn't it? Like people <laughs> put forward and say, actually, no, I don't want your conservatory anywhere near my wall. It's a bit like it's the- exactly what it's like, isn't it? Like sometimes you think the you know seven hundred years ago, you think oh, it should be so backwards and so different from nowadays, and and in many ways it actually isn't. But you know, some things just don't change. <laughs> people will always argue with their neighbours. <laughs> and so like that, those are just those little interesting, those little bits that you come across. They are just so interesting that you find in the archives. And so you must have found some fantastic first-hand accounts. Like I'm, I'm sure there's, it's usually of us people who were probably literate or so on. Um, but there must have been some interesting things. Which kind of ones, like what was your favourite first-hand story that you, you found? Well, if, um, we're lucky that we have uh, the mayor's court rolls, uh, though for only a few years, from 1298 to 1307. And I realise that the mayor's court rolls must sound really, really boring. But in fact, there are some great stories in, in this particular sort. Like, for example, uh, there was a man called Thomas Fleet who lived on Cornhill. 
who was taken before the mayor's court in 1307, uh, charged with mocking the mayor, who was John Blunt at the time. And the way he mocked the mayor was by neighing like a horse every time that the mayor rode past him. <laughs> and I just thought that was fantastic. And another great story, and my absolute favourite story, I think, from 14th century London, was also from the mayor's court role. And it uh, involves a man called William, who was the rector of one of medieval London's many, many dozens of parish churches. Uh, I don't know his last name, unfortunately. So uh, William developed this uh, absolute fascination with a disease that he called wolf. And I'm not totally sure what wolf is, but I suspect that it's what we now call lupus, which actually means wolf in Latin. And William decided that the best way to cure the disease called wolf was with uh, the flesh of dead wolves. So he somehow contacted a person abroad. And unfortunately, uh, where exactly abroad is not specified in the story. And this person on the continent uh, sent him a box of four dead wolves. (laughs) And unfortunately, uh, when the dead animals arrived in London, their bodies had become putrid, quote unquote. And so William was was taken before the, the court of, of the mayor at this time was called Ellis Russell uh, to explain himself. And Ellis asked the advice of all the physicians and surgeons in London about the matter. And they told him that we cannot find in any of our writings any disease which the, the flesh of wolves would cure. And I'm like, yeah, OK, no kidding. And this is just like it's so their their response to that is just so deadpan and and I just absolutely love this story of of this this rector who gets obsessed with the disease and thinks that that the flesh of dead animals can can cure it, and that somehow at the at the end of the twelve nineties or beginning of the thirteen hundreds, this man in London had managed to make contact with someone on the continent who was able and willing to send him a box of four dead animals. The whole thing is just really bizarre. And I think it reveals so much about contemporary attitudes towards disease, for one thing. Um, But also that there was quite a lot of contact here between London and the continent in general. Well, you've painted such a a vivid picture of um, of those like everyday lives that's brilliant and to take it more to the political level and so obviously medieval London as you have spoken an important city and the centre of medieval England really and what kind of things were going on politically because it could be a very politically charged atmosphere and there was events such as the peasants revolt and and various kind of you know over medieval England different kings and queens and usurpations and revolt and what was going on in, in 14th century London? Well, the early 1300s was a, was a very politically turbulent time, you know, especially during the reign of Edward II, you know, from 1307 to, to 1327. And London ended up being dragged into these conflicts. So, you know, in 1312, uh, Edward II had a massive uh, argument with some of his barons who had murdered his you know, favourite and perhaps lover, Piers Gaveston. Uh, Edward sought refuge in London. Uh, the earls brought their armies to just a few miles outside the city. And then for, for a moment, it looked as though everything was going to tip into civil war. Uh, thankfully, it didn't. Uh, but then a few years later, in 1321, Edward had another argument with, with more of his barons who had rebelled against his, his latest male favourite. And while he was holding parliament in London, uh, they placed their armies around the walls of, of the city. So, as I said, you know, we can basically visualise medieval London as a as a fortified castle. Um, so it was actually comparatively easy to, to keep 
to keep someone trapped in London by by just blocking all the exits, basically, which is nowadays I think impossible to imagine because London just sprawls on forever. But but back then you could you could trap someone in in London, and and the barons actually did that to Edward II in in 1321. Um, years later, in 1326, Edward had to flee from the city to uh, avoid it happening yet again. Uh, when his wife, Queen Isabella, led uh, the latest rebellion against him. And London in the 14th century or the 13th and 14th centuries tended to be very, very anti-royalist and very, you know, and it was very anti-Edward II in the 1320s. Um, so in 1326, the city just exploded into a kind of anarchy and of chaos and violence. And the Bishop of Exeter, Walter Stapledon, uh, who's the man who uh, founded Exeter College at the University of Oxford in 1314. He ended up being murdered in, in London. Uh, he was pulled off his horse outside St. Paul's uh, while trying to reach sanctuary in there, um, was clubbed over the head, dragged into cheap... And then it was a very awful death. So this this is just, you know, one example of, of the kind of, yeah, the, the political turmoil in, that was actually going on in London in the early 1300s. Uh, so Edward II was deposed, his son Edward III became king. In 1337, Edward III claimed the throne of France and began what we know as the, the Hundred Years' War. And between 1338 and 1340, there was genuine fear in, in London, um, and England more specifically, more generally, that, uh, that the French were going to invade. So plans were put into action to, to protect London uh, against a possible French invasion, so, for example, men were sent to, to guard the mouth of the Thames because uh, there was a strong belief that the French were going to sail in their ships right up the Thames into the heart of London. And uh, a number of piles and hurdles were driven into the Thames in 1338 so that only one ship at a, at a time could pass up the river. Uh, they weren't removed until 1344. Uh, also, the fortifications of the city were strengthened and lots of men were, were put on watch uh, on, on the walls around London. But... Fortunately, an invasion never came. <laughs> yeah. And I think if anyone says to me, I know certainly for my, myself, I'm not, I'm not widely read on medieval history. But what I can tell you about medieval history is there was the Black Death. I can yes. tell you about Black Death. Um, and I suppose considering the last two and a half years that we've all experienced as well, we probably have a better understanding now of maybe the level of fear um, of not knowing what was going to happen. This disease was coming, what was it going to do and the amount of people that it ended up killing and so on. Um, what was London's experience of, of that pandemic? And I suppose then as well, if we're just going to go with all the doom and gloom, might that as well then tie in about like just natural disasters? Like, cause, cause there, there's some, of those happen in London as well, isn't there? It's a very, like, for those of the time who were very religious, I suppose mm. it must have seemed like the end of the world, like all these plagues and so on. Absolutely, yeah. I'll, I'll just answer the, the question about natural disasters first, if that's okay. Then I'll come on to, to the Black Death in, in London. Yeah. So the biggest natural disaster of the early 1300s was the Great Famine, which happened between 1315 and 1317, not only in London, but in, in the whole of England, uh, basically, it hardly stopped raining for about 18 months or, you know, maybe closer to two years. Um, and the harvest failed catastrophically for two years in a row right across England. Gosh. And something like 10 percent of the entire population starved to death. It was oh. it was a really awful time. And 
Um, so possibly in London, it, it was even worse than, than out in the country because, you know, at least more people in the country could at least try to, to grow their, their own food. And a couple of London chroniclers tell us that in, in the markets of Cheapside uh, in 1317, two small onions cost one penny. And I know to us that sounds like nothing, but most people at the time earned something like one and a half or two pence per day. So basically, people were having to work for half a day or, or more just to be able to have enough money to pay for two small onions. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's how scarce food was at the time. And we, we do know that uh, a beggar called Alice, for example, was just was, was sitting out outside the walls of St. Paul's and she died from what was called bodily weakness and, and lack of food. So she was one of the, the many victims of, of the Great Famine. And the weather was was really strange in the in the 1310s because in in 1315 and 1317 there were two fairly catastrophic thunderstorms in in London uh, that were so bad that people like it, you know the Thames and the other rivers burst their banks people actually drowned uh, houses were were swept away uh, the Fleet Bridge over the River Fleet was was also badly damaged so there was something really really odd going on with the weather in the 1310s. Then finally, you know, things settled down a bit, you know, beginning in 1318. And perhaps people started to believe that, you know, everything was getting better. And then 30 years later, along comes the Black Death, the biggest catastrophe of the entire 14th century. So it arrived in England in uh, the summer of 1348, and it reached London in about November 1348, possibly uh, Uh, in December. And as far as I can tell, it killed at least 35% of the population of London, uh, possibly as many as 50% of the population. Um, so one chronicler tells us that a new burial site uh, was built near Smithfield, and between February and April 1349, 200 people were being buried there every day. And that, of course, that's not including all the many dozens of other city churchyards where, where people were, were um, also being buried. It was basically just an absolute cataclysm. And I did quite a lot of research on, on London families who, who were um, alive at this time and who suffered from, from the Black Death. I'd just like to tell you about a, a couple of them. Um, so there was a painter called Walter Stockwell who uh, was married to a woman called Joan and they had one son and four daughters. And also uh, Walter's brother and their sister were still alive. So there were nine members of this family who were alive and living in London uh, at the beginning of 1349. A few months later, uh, of all these nine people, only one of them was left alive, uh, Agnes Stockwell, one of uh, Walter and Joan's four daughters. She had lost both her parents, all four of her siblings, and her aunt and her uncle, and she was only seven years old. Gosh. And one thing that... I did like about looking at all this absolute horror and, and death was that the London authorities uh, took a great concern in, in children uh, who were orphaned during the Black Death and, also, and made sure that they were sent to live with, with surviving relatives uh, wherever possible. Now, poor little Agnes Stockwell had lost all eight members of her family, uh, but the authorities sent her to live with a young man called Thomas Bornham, who was her father's apprentice. So uh, people, mostly boys, sometimes girls, started their apprenticeship when they were 12 or 13, and they usually lasted for seven years. So Thomas Bornham himself was almost certainly only a teenager. 
Um, but at least he was someone who was familiar to little Agnes Stockwell, who, who could look after her until she grew up. And another family were, was the Aspels. So there was Adam Aspel, uh, who was a skinner, worked with animal skins. Uh, he wrote his will in April 1349. Uh, he mentioned his wife, Oncilia, strange, unusual name, and their two sons and daughter. Oncilia wrote her own will only six days later. Uh, Adam and their two sons were already dead by then. And Oncilia herself died shortly afterwards. Um, their daughter, who was called Julianne Aspel, thankfully survived and was sent to live with an aunt and uncle uh, outside London. So that's another family catastrophe. Um, who else was there? John and Maud Mims, they lived on the street called Poultry. Uh, they both died a few days apart in April 1349. Their daughter Alice died as well. They had another daughter called Isabel, who was eight years old, and she was sent to live with her grandfather, who had fortunately survived as well. But we just see the absolute horror when you, you know, and when I just looked at, at all these, these people and, and, and just tried to imagine what it would feel like, you know, to, to be a child and, and to lose your, your entire family. You know, and there was, there was another man I looked at um, who had six children. I think his wife was already dead. He was raising his six children. He and three of the children died. Uh, another three survived. Um, a couple called Thomas and Marjorie Canterbury both died and left four young sons who were all under 10. Uh, they were sent to live with their older half-brother, uh, Marjorie's son from, from a previous marriage. And this happened, you know, quite a bit that, that orphan children um, were, were taken care of. Uh, thank goodness, um, weren't left to fend for themselves. Gosh. And just finally on, on, this, on this subject, uh, one young boy... Uh, who lived through the Black Death, death was, was the poet Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, who was born in London in about 1342 or a little after. So he would have been perhaps, what, six years old, roughly, uh, when he lived through the plague. And we know from, from uh, their wills, his, uh, his uncle and his step it seems highly likely that, that they died of the plague. So Geoffrey Chaucer was, was himself affected um, the Black Death, but, but thankfully for the future of English literature, uh, Geoffrey himself survived. That's but, really, yes, um... it's an absolute cataclysm. Yeah, and uh, and it wasn't even even it wasn't even the end, unfortunately, in 1349, because there were further mass outbreaks of the Black Death in 1361 and 1369, though thankfully nowhere near as deadly as the 1349 outbreak. Mm. Now, it's really heartbreaking to hear those names and the, the decimation of those families. Um, but yeah, really interesting to hear of those children and how, how the community tried to, to help them, you know, to move forward and, and, and build some kind of a new, um, new lives for themselves. And um, to end on, on a less somber note, um, <laughs> let's take it back to where we started to the landmarks of London. And um, mm. so Alex couldn't be here today, but we'd all been chatting about, um, which lost medieval London landmarks we would, you know, if we could go back in time, we'd love to see. So Alex's was the old London Bridge. So we thought we'd put it to you. What what would you choose if it's possible out of all these, you know, wonderful landmarks you've been talking about? Yeah, I suppose I, I would really like to see the old St. Paul's um, and also um, what what is actually still called the Palace of Westminster, which was 
uh, you know, the great medieval royal palace of Westminster, which is now, of course, the Houses of Parliament, but the original building burned down in, in 1834. So they, if I have to choose, I can't choose one, sorry, but they would be my first two. But my main one would be, like like Alex, I would also really desperately love to see the old London Bridge because it just looks amazing when you see, you know, um, paintings of it. You know, it was so busy. There were so many, you know, great tall houses on on, on the bridge. You know, and people passing through it all the time, and mm. and I would just absolutely love to see it before you know the, what stood there before you know the concrete monstrosity that is now London Bridge. In my in my opinion, sorry. Um, so I, I visited London several months ago, and I and I went to the Church of Saint Magnus the Martyr on uh, on Lower Thames Street, and they actually have this this model of of medieval London Bridge. So if anybody's interesting, interested in seeing that, I, I can highly recommend it. I took about 500 pictures of it. It was wonderful. <laughs> oh, I, I think I'd really love to see that like, Tower of London in action, like actually being used yeah. as a as a historical building, not just somewhere that's lovely to go and look at. And I'd love to see it in, in action. Yeah. And but, yeah, one oh, definitely. That was really interesting about the tower in in the 14th century was that the drawbridge was raised when the king was in residence, but most of the time he wasn't. So most of the time the drawbridge was down. You know, anyone could wander in and out. And as well as the soldiers would, that would have been there as the garrison, there were a lot of workshops inside the tower. So a lot of carpenters worked there, for example, or, or armourers and, and blacksmiths. So it was just. So as well as being, you know, like a, a great fortification, it was also like a workplace for, for, for many people, which I thought was, was great. Yeah. Oh, well, Catherine, thank you so much for such a fascinating run through of, of London in the 14th century. Just very quickly for our listeners, tell us a bit more about your book, when it's out, if it's already out, where they can get it from. Give us a bit of details. <laughs> yeah. So the book is called uh, London, a 14th century city and its people. And it is out already. And you can buy it from you know, online bookshops like Amazon or Book Depository. Hopefully you could also find it in your local Waterstones, for example. Um, so it's looking at the social history of London between 1300 and, and 1350. And there are a number of short chapters where I look at different aspects of London and London life, for example, health. The houses, roads, apprentices, women, hospitals, uh, this kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's a, a social history of 14th century London. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Catherine. Again, thank you for joining us for a really fascinating episode. Uh, thank you to Beth for co-hosting with myself today. It's always, always lovely to work with you. And uh, tune in next time for more fascinating history from History Hack. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. <laughs> Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book